Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. As soon as you walked inside the crime scene on Independence Day in 1954, County Coroner Samuel Gerber knew what he was dealing with. The victim was a young pregnant wife, viciously beaten in her bedroom on the second floor of her upscale suburban home. The brutality of it was overwhelming. The poor woman's head and face were covered with deep, crescent-shaped cuts. And the bedroom, it looked like someone had walked in with a bucket full of paint and splashed it all around. Yet the other rooms of the house looked stilted, staged. A doctor's valise stood on its end, its contents spilled onto the floor a bit too perfectly. Drawers in the living room were neatly stacked rather than ransacked, like you would expect from an intruder. And then there was the husband with this bizarre story about an intruder with bushy hair who managed to knock him unconscious twice. Come on now. It was the husband, obviously. And that man was no stranger to Gerber who didn't doubt for a second that the guy was capable of murder. With all this in mind, Gerber was appalled at how sloppy the police work had been at the crime scene, how pally the local police were with the prime suspect. Here was a guy undoubtedly guilty of murder, and yet the investigators on scene seemed to be looking in other directions. What a waste of time. Gerber set out to put an end to that. He ordered the Bay Village police to secure the scene, call in more experienced detectives from nearby Cleveland, and for God's sake, quit treating the husband like a victim. He was no victim, Gerber insisted. He was a killer. He brutally murdered his pregnant wife with their son asleep just down the hallway. It was destined to be one of the biggest murder cases of the 20th century, and Gerber was determined to make sure Sam Shepard paid for it. Choosing cases to research for this podcast can sometimes be a little trickier than you might think. I aim to focus on lesser-known crimes, which, as I explained in the trailer for season one, meant no Manson, no Bundy, no Amanda Knox. For a while, I was thinking no Sam Shepard either. I'd understood that a TV series and big-budget Hollywood movie had been inspired by the case, so I figured the details were probably well-known to most. But then a listener suggested it, and I finally read about it, ironically via a chapter in one of my own books. Co-author Emily G. Thompson covered the Shepard case in a book we co-wrote together, and I've been slow to read the chapters I didn't write. Long story short, I realized there's a lot more to this case than I initially thought, and it sparked not one, but two trials of the century. Plus, it reached the U.S. Supreme Court. So here we are. 
From the moment the news broke on July 4th, 1954, that a handsome doctor's stunning wife had been killed in a quaint suburb of Cleveland, Ohio, people were drawn to the case. It wasn't just that the couple at its center was rich and attractive, or that the two seemingly had everything they could possibly want in life. It was also that they were really well-known in the community, and more than that, really well-liked. When she died, Marilyn was 31, athletic, and beautiful. Her husband, Sam, was 30 years old and a respected surgeon at the Bayview Osteopathic Hospital, a nonprofit founded by his father that also employed Sam's two older brothers. Friends and neighbors knew him affectionately as Dr. Sam. That voice is Bill Curtis, host of American Justice, which had an episode on the case. Dr. Sam wasn't an MD, but rather a DO, as in Doctor of Osteopathic Medicine. Osteopathy, as a brand of alternative medicine, had been around a long time by then. It was developed in 1874 by a doctor named Andrew Taylor Still, who thought that the medicines being prescribed by regular doctors of his day were useless, maybe even harmful, considering that during this era, it was still pretty common to find a jar of leeches in a doctor's office and whiskey was used to treat tuberculosis. Perhaps he had a point. Osteopaths aimed to treat the patient rather than the disease, while MDs focused on allopathic medicine, which focused on alleviating bothersome symptoms. For most people nowadays, this is a Pepsi versus Coke type scenario. There isn't a huge difference between the two, though you might have a personal preference. But in the 1950s, there was something of a rivalry between MDs and DOs. The American Medical Association didn't embrace osteopathy in the slightest, successfully lobbied against osteopaths being allowed to treat soldiers in World War II, and generally just looked down on those who practiced it. On the flip side, osteopaths were more inclined to self-promote, in part to combat anti-DO sentiment pushed by MDs, and tended to treat the gig as much as a commercial business as they did a moral calling. Medical doctors found that uncouth. Regardless of the stigma still attached, the Shepard family was incredibly successful. Sam's father, Richard Shepard, founded the Bayview Hospital with his sights set on it becoming a family business. And it did. The baby of the family, Sam wasn't always keen on following the path his father prescribed for him. He loved sports and would have been thrilled to go pro at either football or wrestling. In his younger years, he struggled a bit in school, necessitating some hands-on tutoring here and there. But in high school, he kicked himself into gear from a mini documentary by The Crime Reel. Sam attended the Cleveland Heights High School where he excelled both athletically and academically. He was a popular member of the school and became class president for three years. It's probably no coincidence that high school was a big turning point in Sam's life because it was during high school that he met and fell in love with a young woman named Marilyn Reese. Marilyn had been the only child born to her parents, Thomas and Dorothy Reese. When Marilyn was about four years old, her mother died in childbirth, which forever undercut any sense of security she had in her childhood. She bounced around with different relatives, then ended up back with her father after he remarried, but she was never particularly close with either him or her stepmother. Marilyn was one grade ahead of Sam, so he was surprised when she first showed interest in him. They started dating, and soon, Sam gave Marilyn his class pin. 
She could tell he was smart, but not particularly driven, at least not yet. You know, you're going to have a hard time getting into college at this rate, she told him. Sam was not one to shy away from a challenge. After high school, he chose to follow his father and brothers and pursue a career in medicine. He graduated from the Los Angeles Osteopathic School of Physicians and Surgeons, where he obtained his Doctor of Osteopathic Medicine degree. Marilyn, meanwhile, went to Skidmore College in New York. She and Sam continued to date long distance, though Sam was convinced Marilyn should go out on dates with other guys. At the time, it wasn't an excuse for him to date other girls. He was too busy with med school. But he did seem to worry about what it meant for the couple long-term if they'd only ever dated each other. Given Marilyn's background, though, she wanted as much security as possible. So when she fell for Sam, she fell hard. She wanted it to be forever. When she did go on dates, she always wrote him beforehand, her letters nearly begging him to object. He never did. Predictably, Sam did end up meeting another girl he wanted to date. And just as Marilyn had told him of her outings, he told Marilyn about this other girl. Instead of being okay with it, as Sam had been, Marilyn was heartbroken. She broke up with him and mailed him back his pin. Sam went on a few dates with the other girl, but had never wanted to end things permanently with Marilyn, so they got back together. And this time it stuck. They got married February 21st, 1945, after which they moved to Erie, Ohio. His dominant father had insisted that he came back to Ohio from California and worked with his two brothers at the highly successful osteopathic hospital, which Dr. Shepard Sr. had started in 1948. That's Robert Powell narrating Great Crimes and Trials of the 20th Century. By the time Sam joined the staff of his dad's hospital, he and Marilyn had a son named Sam, though everyone called him Chip. Bay Village, where they lived, was fairly small, and the shepherds were high-profile, so pretty much everyone in town knew who they were. The police chief was a buddy, the mayor was not only a family friend, but a neighbor. Still, the friendships were largely superficial, as in not many people in town had any idea that the shepherds' marriage wasn't as Norman Rockwell as it seemed. Sam's family knew, largely because Marilyn told them. Sam seemed to fancy himself a playboy, which was tough to do with Marilyn, whom he saw as icy after becoming a mom. That likely had a bit to do with the fact that she had had a difficult delivery, a fact further colored by her own mother's death during childbirth. Oh, and also Sam was one of those dads who seemed to think he deserved a medal for babysitting his own kid rather than being equally responsible for him, which is a surefire way to make your partner resentful, which in turn is kind of a buzzkill, in case you weren't aware. Regardless, Sam wanted more sex, like daily sex. Marilyn tried to oblige, but she perhaps wasn't as enthusiastic as her husband wanted her to be. So he cheated. A lot. It was this aspect of the case that ultimately caught reporters' attention. Author James Neff. When the element of sex was injected into this case, it electrified the TV news and the print reporters. Um, It was your classic love triangle. Suddenly, this was much more juicy than your straightforward homicide. Sam had slept with women colleagues and the wives of male colleagues. He slept with female nurses and interns. He slept with a few patients. Marilyn drew her fair share of male attention, too, 
though Sam was confident she was faithful to him. One time he did raise an eyebrow when he heard rumors that the neighbor slash mayor, a married guy named Spencer Huck, was after Marilyn. But Sam asked Spencer outright, hey, are you sleeping with my wife? Huck denied it, and Sam believed him. There was no question that Huck was at least smitten, however. In addition to being the Bay Village mayor, he was also its butcher, and whenever Marilyn placed an order, he saw fit to deliver it in person. She also would swing by the butcher's shop and sit in the back room to have coffee and chat. But Marilyn was also friends with Spencer's wife, Esther. So if there had been anything going on, it was minor enough that it didn't seem to upset the missus for whatever that's worth. Meanwhile, whatever Sam was up to did upset Marilyn. One lover in particular got under her skin, a nurse by the name of Susan Hayes. Susan was young, in her early 20s, and the two would have sex about every other week, sometimes in Sam's car, sometimes in Sue's cramped apartment. Their relationship lasted on and off for two or three years. Sam was so blatant about it that it actually pissed off some of his friends. Susan at one point moved to California, and when Sam went out there to stay with a friend, he had his girlfriend Susan stay at the friend's house with him. The buddy's wife was especially incensed. She was friends with Marilyn, and yet she was being put in this position of hosting her friend's husband's lover in her house. Marilyn was upset enough about this affair that she considered divorce, but after confiding in her in-laws, she decided to hold off in the hope that they might talk some sense into Sam. They were on her side, outside of offering some typically 1950s sexist advice, stuff like, make sure you keep yourself pretty so he stays interested in you, because we all know that spouses never cheat on attractive partners. Still, they convinced Marilyn that Sam was being immature and obviously ungrateful, but that he would come around. It was in everyone's best interest, especially little chips, that the family stay together. Of course, what all this meant was that once investigators started looking at the family, they discovered that things were not as picture perfect as they may have seemed. In fact, things were so messy that investigators arriving at the scene of the crime July 4th, 1954, were immediately convinced Sam Shepard was a cold-blooded killer. Bay Village police didn't hear that something was amiss at the Shepard house from Sam Shepard himself. Rather, Sam had called his friend, Mayor Huck, and said something like, For God's sake, get over here quick. I think they've killed Meryl. That's an actor from a 1975 movie about the case called Guilty or Innocent. Spencer Huck roused his wife, Esther, and though the two only lived a couple of houses away from the Shepherds, they hopped into the mayor's car because the mayor had a bum knee and wanted to get there as quickly as humanly possible. When the Hucks arrived, Spencer found Sam on the floor, cradling his neck. Esther ran upstairs to the bedroom that Sam and Marilyn shared in summertime. They ditched the house's primary bedroom in hot months and instead slept in a cooler guest room with twin beds. When Esther entered the room, she barely recognized her friend. Marilyn's body was sprawled across one of the twin beds. Her pajama top was pushed up, exposing her breasts, while her legs dangled off the bed's edge. Esther rushed downstairs and told her husband to call the police. The mayor did, and the first cop to reach the scene was patrolman Fred Dranken. 
Drankin noted that things in the house seemed amiss, as though someone had ransacked the place. When he reached the bedroom and spotted Marilyn, he tried in vain to find a pulse. It was clear it had been a while, probably a couple of hours or so, since she had been attacked, based on the way the blood around her was coagulating. Drankin and his Bay Village police colleagues immediately knew they were in over their heads, though not because Sam was friends with so many high-ranking people throughout the city. They didn't even consider the whole conflict of interest possibility. Rather, they knew as small-town cops in a generally safe area, they didn't have the experience or expertise needed to crack a case like this one. Bay Village had never seen a murder before. So Drenkin reached out to the Cleveland Police Department, which sent over two homicide detectives straight away. Detectives Robert Schottke and Patrick Barrow suspected that all was not as it seemed. For starters, their interpretation of the home's supposed ransacking differed from Drenkin's. To them, things looked staged. Three drawers opened in a living room desk, apparently too neatly stacked on top of each other. Wouldn't a robber have just yanked out the drawers? Dr. Shepard's medical bag was just too perfectly poised on its side. It just didn't ring true. Then there was Sam's explanation of what happened. He said that he and Maryland had invited over friends for dinner, drinks, and a movie. Sam had had a long day at work, and a heartbreaking one at that. He had tried to save a little boy's life by manually massaging the boy's stopped heart, but it didn't work. The child had been hit by a truck, and even though Shepard worked on him until his own hands went numb, it was to no avail. A little after midnight, while Marilyn and the guests were watching the movie, Sam fell asleep on a small daybed at the foot of the stairs. Marilyn started nodding off as well, so their guests tried to sneak out quietly, but Marilyn awoke, walked them out, and circled back to try to get her husband to go upstairs for a proper night's sleep. Sam was a heavy sleeper, though, and couldn't be budged. Around 12.30 a.m., Marilyn gave up and went upstairs alone. The next thing I knew, Marilyn was screaming or moaning my name. I jumped off the couch and ran upstairs. I thought I saw a white form standing in our bedroom. Then I think I was struck from behind and knocked out. This is from a 1969 documentary about the case. When I came to... I went over to where Marilyn was. I felt she was gone. I believe I then rushed into our son Chip's room. After seeing him, I came to the conclusion he was unharmed. As I came out of Chip's room, I thought I heard a noise downstairs. Sam said he saw a figure near the door leading outside toward the beach. Sam gave chase, catching up to the form and tackling it from behind. Then I felt as if I had been twisted or choked. That's all I remember. The Cleveland detectives were dubious. How could a full-grown man, one undoubtedly pumped full of adrenaline at hearing his wife's frantic calls for help and then seeing her dead body, be knocked unconscious twice, apparently by a single blow each time? And how could he describe everything in such calm, stilted language? Sam said the next thing he knew, he was waking up on the beach. His feet and lower legs were in the water. He looked around in a daze but didn't see the mysterious form again, so he staggered back into his house and called Mayor Huck. This was about 5.40 a.m. Dr. Shepard described the attacker as tall, with a large head and bushy hair. But the police were never convinced of his story. 
And over the next few weeks, there was mounting pressure to make an arrest. That's from a 1999 PBS documentary. When Huck, his wife, and soon after, detectives arrived, they saw that seven-year-old Chip was still asleep in his room. Investigators found this suspicious, but Esther Huck told them that the kiddo took after his dad and that he was a hell of a sound sleeper. She knew this firsthand because about a year earlier, Chip had been spending the night at the Huck's house when the shepherd's house caught fire. Even though they lived only two houses down and the whole street was soon crawling with police and fire trucks with sirens blaring, Chip slept through the entire thing. No one was hurt in that fire, by the way, though a lot of the shepherd's belongings were damaged and had to be scrubbed clean of stubborn soot. Anyway, that the police and coroner walking into the scene immediately suspected Sam Shepard mattered. It affected how they interpreted Shepard's version of events, but more than that, it affected how they treated the crime scene. The police had treated the crime scene as little more than a bloody mess. Big assumptions were made, like that all of the blood inside of the home must belong to Marilyn Shepard because Sam Shepard, obviously her killer, wasn't bleeding himself. So initially, a trail of blood leading from Marilyn's body through the house was dismissed as having been from a bloody murder weapon Sam must have carried outside to hide. Few samples were gathered, few photographs were taken. A crime scene analyst spent barely 30 minutes trying to lift fingerprints from inside of the house because what was the point when it was obvious Sam killed his wife? Not only that, but pretty much everywhere he looked, the same analyst noticed that the fingerprints he found were unidentifiable, usually because they were smudged or there were multiple prints layered on top of each other, which is common in high-trafficked areas of a house. Imagine how many fingerprints are probably on your door handle right now. Differentiating an intruders left there overnight from the five guests you invited over last week is damn near impossible. And lots of people were in and out of the Shepherd home on a regular basis. Hell, a window washer named Richard Eberling told police that just the day before Marilyn's death, he had been through the house himself. He even cut his hand fixing one of the windows, he said, and dripped blood throughout the place. Worse than how sloppy the police work was, though, was how the media reported the findings. The three Cleveland newspapers reported that analysts didn't find fingerprints, period, which suggested that the crime scene had been wiped clean. That obviously leaves a mighty different impression on readers than would the truth, which was that there were countless fingerprints, but few that were clear enough to be identified. Media also reported that the analysts described fine scratches on trophies in the shepherd's living room, but they didn't provide the important context that those trophies had been scrubbed of soot from the house fire a year earlier. In a series of front-page editorials, Cleveland's major newspaper accused Dr. Shepard of his wife's murder. Each time an editorial ran, it seemed law enforcers did as the editorial demanded within 24 hours. One demanded a coroner's inquest, a public hearing or spectacle, really, in which the county coroner called witnesses and examined evidence and basically laid out his theory of what happened with no judge to safeguard the rights of any suspects. In front of a packed school gymnasium, Coroner Gerber made it clear that he not only believed Sam Shepard killed his wife, but he believed he knew why. Sam had been carrying on a years-long affair with a pretty brunette. 
Gerber confronted him in front of hundreds of neighbors. Isn't it true that you were cheating on your wife? Sam indignantly denied this. No, he said, I've been true to my wife. This was precisely how Gerber had hoped Sam would answer, because he knew he'd caught Shepard in a damaging lie. Three months after Marilyn Shepard was brutally killed, her husband Sam was on trial for first-degree murder. The coroner's inquest had been just weeks earlier, and fresh on Gadfly's minds were the adamant denials Sam had made when asked if he had cheated on his wife. At trial, prosecutors presented Susan Hayes, a 24-year-old medical technician. She described a three-year sexual affair with Dr. Shepard. The already high-profile case absolutely exploded. News stories ran internationally about the handsome, well-to-do doctor who killed his wife so he could run off with his younger mistress. Cleveland was a city in hysteria, almost a lynch mob. This is Sam Reese Shepard, the son who had been nicknamed Chip. Uh, After close to 50, 70 days of bannerline headlines saying that this family was getting away with murder, this privileged family and this handsome doctor with five girlfriends. Everything that tied Sam to his wife's slaying was circumstantial. There was no physical evidence at all supporting prosecutors' theories. Gerber et al. argued that Shepard hadn't been seriously hurt, while a doctor for the defense testified that actually, Dr. Sam's reflexes were all screwed up on one side of his body, and he had involuntary muscle spasms that signified a nervous system injury. And those were symptoms you simply couldn't fake or self-inflict. But in the end, that didn't matter to the jury. They had heard time and again that Dr. Sam was a cheater, that he'd had means and motive, that the crime scene had been cleaned up, that his brothers had helped cover up evidence. The list went on and on. And the judge overseeing the trial refused to move it to a neighboring county. In fact, he didn't even bother trying to keep jurors from reading news coverage about the case, no matter how incendiary or inaccurate the reporting might be. After 10 weeks of testimony, Shepard was found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. In the days after the verdict, Shepard's patriarch Richard fell ill and was hospitalized. He'd had a bleeding gastric ulcer for years and, on top of that, a recent diagnosis of stomach cancer to boot. With her husband in the hospital and her youngest son in prison, Ethel Shepard stayed with her middle son, Steve. Two weeks after the verdict, she locked herself in a bedroom and shot herself with a snub-nosed revolver Steve kept in the house. She left a note that read, quote, Dear Steve, I just can't manage without father, end quote. Sam Shepard later said that his mother's death was directly caused by the media coverage of his case. This hysteria and this uh, actual injustice killed my mother. The people that, that induced this injustice pulled that trigger to her head. Just as sure they committed murder. Now, they did commit murder. Eleven days after his wife's death, Richard Shepard Sr. died at the hospital he had founded. His children attributed his death to the stress of Sam's trial and conviction, as well as to his wife's suicide. I remember covering both funerals, and uh, they wouldn't let us into the cemetery, so we had to climb over the wall. 
journalist Bill Levy. There was some thought that maybe Sam would, you know, because of the emotion, would throw himself on the grave and, and admit that he had murdered his wife or something. Sam didn't confess. Maybe he would have if police had recruited John Reed, the famous interrogator and celebrated founder of the Reed Method we talked about in the Daryl Parker episode. But this was a year earlier, and Sam smartly had a lawyer by his side from the start. So instead, he languished in prison for seven years while his first defense lawyer, Bill Corrigan, filed one appeal after another. Corrigan also hired an expert in blood spatter, a Dr. Paul Leland Kirk, to re-examine the scene. Kirk agreed to the work but warned Corrigan and the Shepherds that he was not out to exonerate Sam. If he found evidence pointing to the doctor's guilt, he'd make it public, he said. But that's not what he found. Based on the shape of the blood spatter around Marilyn's body and the patterns it made, Kirk concluded that she had been killed by a left-handed assailant. The trail of blood that the coroner was sure was Marilyn's blood dripping from the murder weapon was more likely caused by a flowing wound from the killer. Two of Marilyn's teeth had been broken, and Kirk believed that she had managed to bite her attacker, which would have resulted in an injury Sam Shepard didn't have. Despite this evidence, Corrigan failed to get his client a new trial. The lawyer died in July 1961. The Shepard family reached out to a young, new lawyer named F. Lee Bailey. I read the trial record and I met Dr. Sam and I felt that he was innocent. It just didn't seem right to let an innocent man languish away in prison without even trying to get him out. This is Bailey speaking to reporters. We filed what is called a petition for a writ of habeas corpus, which asks that he be released because his constitutional rights had been violated. And it came on before federal judge Carl A. Weinman in southern Ohio. Some of the things that he found to be constitutional defects in that trial included a lot of pretrial publicity that he thought was most unfair and probably preconditioned the jurors. Weinman also took issue with the state judge who had overseen Shepard's trial. That guy, a man named Edward Blythen, who had been up for re-election at the time, told a national reporter in his chambers before the trial began that Sam Shepard was guilty as hell and that the murder was an open and shut case. Had that reporter done her job and printed those comments when they were made, it could have led to a mistrial, but she didn't. She waited 10 years, until soon after the judge died, before telling the world what he had told her back in 1954. He found that the judge who heard the case was a prejudiced man, had not been fair to Sam at all, and furthermore, that he didn't keep control of his courtroom, that newsmen were bouncing up and down like jacks in the box and taking pictures of jurors and kibitzing and making noise and destroying what we like to think is the decorum of a criminal trial. On these grounds, he termed the Shepard conviction a mockery of justice and released him in $10,000 bail pending action by the state. By now, Dr. Kirk, the blood spatter expert, had made headlines with his findings. Also, a TV show called The Fugitive had become a huge hit. The story centered on a doctor wrongly convicted of killing his wife. The parallels seemed strong enough that people assumed it was loosely based on the Shepard case. According to the show's creator, it wasn't. Nor was the 1993 Harrison Ford movie with the same name. But the widely held belief that the two were connected helped convince the general public that Shepard was innocent after all. Separate from that, 
The U.S. Supreme Court decided that the pre-trial publicity in the case was so extensive and prejudicial that Shepard hadn't been given a fair trial. They set aside the jury's verdict in June of 1966. Of course, neither the shift in public opinion nor the SCOTUS decision did much to convince the law enforcers who believed Sam was guilty from the moment they stepped inside the Shepard house back in 1953. Cuyahoga County officials charged Shepard a second time, but in that trial, which started in July 1966, defense lawyer Bailey was not only armed with blood spatter analysis that pointed away from his client, but he also benefited from a shift in societal mores. Sam's adultery wasn't as shocking and scintillating in the swinging 60s as it had been the prior decade. That's not to say the behavior was embraced, but it wasn't as automatically equated with the same kind of moral bankruptcy needed to commit murder, and neither was lying about it. Prosecutors the second time didn't even bother calling their previous star witness, Susan Hayes, to the stand to talk about the torrid affair she'd had with the once-respected doctor. By this point, Sue was married with children, and it was clear that whatever their relationship had once been, it hadn't meant enough to either of them to even try to continue communicating after Sam's conviction. In fact, by the time Sam reached trial number two, he'd remarried someone else entirely. From the 1969 documentary. A few days after his release, Shepard marries Ariane Tevin-Johans, a German girl who had begun a correspondence with him while he was in prison. On a trip to New York, they are mobbed by newsmen. Mr. Shepard, how do you decide you're in love with a man who's in prison? Um, well, that's why I came to the States, to find out if I really was in love. Because you couldn't tell by somebody you have never met. And uh, how many meetings did it take before you did decide? Uh, it was the first moment I walked into the visiting room. The second jury acquitted Shepard, but he was never really free. Not only had both his parents died in ways he considered connected to his conviction, but so had his former father-in-law, Marilyn's dad, Thomas Reese. In 1963, Reese fatally shot himself in an East Cleveland motel room where he left a note which read simply, I'm tired of it all, goodbye. Sam and his second wife were heavy drinkers whose frantic relationship turned tumultuous after his release from prison. They divorced in 1968. Sam married again, this time to a 20-year-old named Colleen Strickland. But by then, both his mental and physical health were tenuous at best. He died of liver failure in 1970 at the age of 46. Sam and Marilyn's son, the boy they'd nicknamed Chip, was raised by his uncle Steve. In 1999, he sued Cleveland for wrongful imprisonment on his father's behalf, but lost in a jury trial. While there are some who still believe that Sam Shepard killed his wife, more believe the deathbed confession of Richard Eberling, a disturbed handyman who had done work on the Shepard's home right around the time Marilyn died. A few years after the murder, Eberling was arrested on suspicion he'd been stealing from his customers. Among his cache of stolen goods were two of Marilyn's rings. It's worth noting that Eberling was known to sometimes wear bushy toupees, to mask his premature hair loss. Because authorities had tied their reputations so tightly to Sam's guilt, they publicly poo-pooed the notion that anyone else might be guilty, and Eberling was never charged. 
But in 1989, he was convicted of killing a different customer, a wealthy elderly woman named Ethel May Durkin, whose death six years earlier had initially been ruled an accidental fall. Turned out, Eberling and his lover had bashed Durkin in the head and posthumously revised her will to leave most of her wealth to the two of them. They were caught when they stiffed a woman who'd helped forge the will of her cut of the proceeds. A journalist named James Neff wrote about the Shepard case in the book, The Wrong Man, for which he interviewed Eberling before the convicted killer died in 1998. Neff uncovered other suspicious deaths tied to the handyman, including the brutal beating of Ethel May Durkin's sister in the 1960s, and he wrote that Eberling confessed to Marilyn's murder during an interview for the book. To research this story, I started with my co-author's work in our book, Unsolved Murders, then also read The Wrong Man by James Neff, as well as countless contemporary newspaper stories. I did not rewatch The Fugitive, but I do remember it well because it was one of the first movies I saw in a theater on a date. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of The Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod, and check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>